Hey, I'm Lisa, and welcome to In Pursuit. This episode is a part of the informational interview series where I do exactly that. Informational interviews are a way to understand the inner workings of various professions, and I hope to do so by interviewing different professionals in my life. Not only is it a way to share their stories and experiences from undergrad to where they are now, but also for you listeners to be able to explore the different professions and pathways that are available. There are so many different, not only destinations, but ways to get there, and wherever you may be in life, I hope you learn something new. As for today, I sat down with my professor, Professor Sarah Mitchell, and she was my introduction to international relations professor. As of yesterday, I took her summer course and it ended yesterday, but I really enjoyed it. And so one time during office hours, we were just chatting and she was sharing the different travels that she's done, the projects she has worked on. And I was like, you are so, so cool. Can you please come on my podcast? And I'm so glad she agreed to, and I'm glad that I was able to interview her. And I just learned so many different things just about academia and underrepresentation of women. She also talked about how to be resilient in a program where you may be the youngest person or underrepresented. And so I think that her experience is really unique. She actually got her PhD by 28. She went straight into school. And within that, she talked about what it looks like to maybe go straight into school versus taking a gap year and just the technicalities of getting a PhD and then also her travel and her writings. And she's a really cool person with a really interesting story. And so I am excited for you to hear it. And without further ado, let's get into the episode. Hello, Professor Mitchell. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on. And could you start off by just introducing yourself? Hi, my name is Sarah Mitchell, and I'm a professor at the University of Iowa in political science. And what did you do for undergrad? Where did you go and what did you study? I went to Iowa State, so the other school in the state. And I was a double major in economics and political science. Within um, economics and political science during undergrad, what was your dream job or what was your outlook while you were in your early 20s? Um, I think like a lot of undergrads in those fields, I thought I would probably uh, go to law school, um, but I took constitutional law and hated it. (laughs) So uh, then started thinking about other options and uh, I always, I suppose from the time I was a kid, I, I liked the idea of being a teacher and I used to play, you know, having a classroom and making up tests for my students kind of thing. And, um, so yeah, I, I think finding out that being a professor was a career option was something that was really exciting for me. How did you find that out and how did you kind of come about that career path? I talked to my advisor in economics. Um, She was a PhD student. And so I just asked her one day, you know, what is a PhD student? And and then she told me that she was going to be uh, becoming a professor in economics. And so then 
that sounded really interesting to me. So I talked to my professors in political science and they, they encouraged me to apply for graduate school. Mm -hmm. And sort of to like get technical for anyone who might be wondering like how to go about getting a PhD and what the path is to becoming a professor, what sort of, what does that look like and what steps do you take to get there? So I took the path where I went straight from undergrad into a PhD program. Um, so I earned a master's degree as part of the PhD program. Uh, some students also get, sometimes they get a master's degree, then they go get a PhD. Um, but PhD programs allow you to complete a master's uh, as part of that degree program. So if you, if you know you want to get a PhD, then I'd recommend just going Jumping right in there. Um, yeah, I went to grad school at 22. So I was uh, the youngest person in my graduate program. Um, so I, I had some downsides because I, you know, I didn't have like the life experience that some of my cohort members had, like some of them had been in the Peace Corps, or had a lot of really interesting experiences. And so I was coming in, you know, very young, naive person, I guess, <laughs> to some extent. Uh, but on the plus side, I guess my career, you know, I was able to become a full professor in my early 40s. So, uh, so yeah, I was able to achieve, you know, um, career success at a younger age. Um, so for PhD programs, most of them take five to six years. So you spend three years or so taking classes, comprehensive exams, and then you write a dissertation, uh, which is, you know, in our department, maybe 150 to 250 pages uh, document where you do an extensive research project. That is amazing that you're able to just go straight into a PhD program. And what sort of led you to that decision to not take a break? And what would you recommend anyone who might be trying to decide whether to take a break or just continue straight into finishing their degree? Well, I think uh, in the 80s and 90, early 90s, like taking a gap year wasn't really a thing. <laughs> so um, I, I understand the logic of it. I would probably recommend if you're going to do it, that you do it after college rather than after high school, because I think, I think you're more open at that point in time to having the kind of experiences that can help shape your career moving forward. Yeah, and um, were there any disadvantages being like the youngest pro person in your program just experience wise or do you think that you kind of that helped you out in the long run I think the hardest part was teaching so in my second year when I was 23 I was assigned to teach 90 undergrads and in intro introduction to international relations and that was yeah as you might imagine teaching 90 students as a 23 year old was very intimidating so <clears throat> so some of my early teaching experiences were not pleasant for me because I didn't find, like, I didn't have the confidence, right, that I would later uh, find. And so that some of those early situations were challenging for me and, and just like establishing authority and knowledge mm -hmm. in an area, I think was more difficult to some extent because I was younger. Did you ever second guess the profession? And then how did you sort of overcome that? Um, needing to be authoritative and how did you just go about that especially so being so young I think for me like I never doubted 
Um, I never really had imposter syndrome like a lot of people have. Like I always felt like I belonged, um, you know, where I was studying. I was a fairly arrogant young person. So <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know where that came from, but, uh, but yeah, I had a lot of confidence as a young person. So even when people were giving me a hard time or I was experiencing Situ tough situations. Like I had a lot of resilience for dealing with that stuff. And, and graduate school also, like you create like a really great community of people around you. So I had really close friends in my graduate program that could help me and, and great mentors and professors that could help me work through those situations. So, so even if something tough happened, I always had a really strong community of people behind me that would support me. And my, my parents have always been, you know, incredible support uh, figures for me in my entire life. And so my mom was, you know, still to this day, uh, you know, the person I would go to if I need help or I want to talk to you about something. How did you build that community in your campus? And do you think um, a lot of it was because you were in a cohort sort of program? Yeah, so I came in with 12 total people in the first year program, first year PhD, and and then uh, I think nine of us got our PhD, which is a really high success rate. Um, probably the typical completion rate is probably 60% for political science. Um, so in other words, if you come in with 10 people, six of them will get their PhD and and so the fact that 75% of my class finished was shows, you know, like how committed everyone was to, to being in, in the field and wanting to be successful. Mm -hmm. um, but also like just really nice, you know, nice people that um, had each other's backs and, and people that I'm still friends with and, you know, rely on today, you know, decades later. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. And earlier, you sort of talked about taking a class that steered you away from law. Is there um, a class that really stood out in your undergraduate experience that you think really prepared you for what you do day to day now? Yeah, I would say I took um, introduction to world politics as a freshman and that I got really interested in that field because of that class. And I became a double major because of that class. And uh, started taking more classes like in American foreign policy and international security. Um, and then, but because I was an economics major, I took a lot of math and statistics classes and those uh, were really strong foundation for me to go to graduate school because my program was, was very quantitative in terms of the requirements for taking statistics classes. So. So I would say having lots of math and statistics is really helpful if you're a social science PhD student. Mm -hmm. And then just a little bit earlier, you said how you had a lot of resilience within your program, even if other people around you were telling you that you couldn't do it. And how did you kind of instill that within yourself? I'm the youngest of six girls and I grew up on a farm in Iowa and so yeah, I think because I was like the baby of the family, everyone kind of always like was looking out for me and and um, protecting me maybe. <laughs> so so yeah, I always had like a really strong um, family uh, 
family and, and we grew up in a small community, like the town that we grew up in only had like 30 people in it, you know, it was a really small farming community. So, so I also like grew up in a place where everyone knew each other and, and if you needed help, like your neighbors were there to help you. So, so I think partly it's just that I grew up in a really safe and supportive environment. And I think when I went out into other places that, that carried over, right. That gave me the confidence to, to succeed in the world. Yeah. And where have you traveled to? Do you mind telling us what you've done and the work you've done abroad? Yeah. So as a graduate student, I had the opportunity to live in Norway for four months, um, which was really amazing. Um, that was my first time really going abroad and, and yeah, definitely living in another country. And I worked on a project that was coding, um, basically trying to understand when countries have regime changes, what are the events that trigger those regime changes? So, so I was overseeing um, other research assistants that were collecting this big data set basically. Um, and, uh, and then one cool thing as an academic is that you have a lot of opportunities to go to conferences and give talks at a lot of, you know, in a lot of locations. So I've been to, you know, like Brazil, Ecuador, Spain, Portugal, Budapest, Italy, United Kingdom, um, Israel, a bunch of places that, yeah, I didn't think as a person, yeah, who grew up on a farm in Iowa, <laughs> that I would be like traveling the world and going to all these places. And, and so that that's definitely um, a real, one of the things that I really like about academia is that you you have a chance to to not now in COVID, but normally to tra travel. So yeah, I was supposed to go to Prague and Hawaii um, and Switzerland this summer, but I did not because of the what's happening right now. So, mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, it shows you the kinds of places. I, I teach in Switzerland every summer also, which is really fun. Um, I've been doing that for five years. So really uh, great opportunities to, to go and see you know, new places. And would you say that's sort of just the nature of being a professor in international relations, or is it you as a person taking opportunities when they come? I think it's both. Um, most people in my, like in my department, most people travel um, to these kind of cool places. Uh, but I have some colleagues who don't go to conferences. So yeah, I, I'd say that this is a small percentage of people that don't want to travel um, want to stay close to home. So, but, but that's, that's fine, right? If you, if traveling is not something you want to do, then you can still be successful as a professor, um, you know, taking that out of the equation. Mm -hmm. And how has that um, experience in so many different cultures and places integrated into your day-to-day -day life and your interactions now in Iowa City and just at the university? I think it's really um, affected, you know, how I view those places, uh, for sure. Like I study territorial disputes, um, but when I went to Israel and, you know, was there in the, you know, in the places where, you know, this like really important religious sites that are contest have been contested for hundreds of years and, and just being able to, you know, we went to the Golan Heights and the Israeli 
Syrian border that's contested. And so um, just being able to like see the physical, you know, contested spaces, I think really, um, like really changed the way I thought about, uh, like I've always studied these things, but I, but yeah, being on the ground and seeing those, seeing uh, where the borders are, what the walls look like, like that, I think it, it gives you a different perspective. Um, and I've always worked with students from lots of different countries and um, economic backgrounds. And so I think, you know, having, um, I don't know, just working with a diverse group of people gives you more, um, I think you're just more open-minded to thinking about um, questions and problems from different perspectives. And you're not, maybe you're not so quick to judge a situation or a person when you've seen things from multiple perspectives. Yeah, definitely. And out of all of your experiences and everything that you've done, which has been most influential to who you are today? Um, I think one of the things that's really influenced me was uh, we started at the University of Iowa. One of my colleagues, Kelly Kadera, and I started a mentoring workshop for women in our field. And the reason we did this is because when so for example, one of my PhD advisors was a female, but she left the profession. And then there were two women ahead of me at Michigan State that left the profession. And we just started observing like a lot of really smart and successful women were leaving political science. And so we were part of a group that formed what was called Women in Conflict Studies. Um, so it was like a mentoring group for women in our field, but we also started a, a mentoring workshop at Iowa that's called Journeys in World Politics. And so we bring in um, about 12 to 14 women um, every year. And then we have, um, you know, women present their research and get feedback, but we also have career and gender discussions where we talk about things like you know, when, like negotiating for jobs or balancing family and career or um, gender issues in the classroom. Um, and so because of those mentoring experiences, like it really changed my perspective. It really opened my eyes to how many ways that women in academics experience biases um, and, and structural biases as well um, in terms of what are how our institutions are organized. Um, so I've, I've, that inspired me to do a lot of research. I've published several papers now on like why do women get promoted less often in academic jobs or why is their work cited less often than their male peers or why do they take on more service roles than their male peers uh, why do they get paid less? Um, so we found that women in political science get paid about $4,000 less than men do on average. Um, so, so these are the kinds of things like I became very uh, activist on the dimension of like helping women in political science and trying to, um, trying to make changes that would um, help the next generation of women not have to face the same barriers. Mm -hmm. And what are some examples of those barriers that you have found? Yeah, I think that a lot of it is just implicit bias, you know, like, like we think about, um, right, there's the famous uh, case of women weren't represented in orchestras until they did 
uh, auditions where they were behind a screen and the person listening didn't know whether the person playing an instrument was male or female. Uh, and so I think in political science, it's the same story, right? If you're in a male dominated field, like I study international conflict and that's, it's, you know, it's a very male dominated field. And so, so it can be hard, right? When we, so how is it implicit? Well, if you're coming up with a syllabus, say for a class on war, it might be like in your mind, like, oh, the people who are the experts or the most famous pieces in this field, like your mind just naturally goes to thinking about male authors. Um, and so that, or white authors, right? And so uh, if we're not think, if we're not trained to see implicit biases, then we, we replicate a lot of these like structures, right? That create inequalities um, in our, in our workplace or, or our curriculum or what have you. Um, so, we, so yeah, I think, um, I think that's the challenge, right? Is getting, getting people to see their biases. And then once they see them, I think they're more open to making changes. Mm -hmm. And in addition to acknowledging your biases and especially as a, our generation, the next generation coming into these professions, what are some other ways that we can sort of deconstruct these barriers? Um, I think it's important for people of my generation to, to fight the, the structures. So mm -hmm. I think a lot of times it's easy just to say, oh, that's the way we do things say, at the University of Iowa. And, and um, we have to say, no, that's not how we do things. Like, like if teaching evaluations are biased against women and faculty of color, then we need to not use them anymore. And so those are the kinds of ways I think that um, I do think older people can push harder against those, you know, this is the way we've always done something, um, the, the structural organization of things. I think younger people um, can, um, I think just just being honest and open in a classroom, even if that's scary. So some of the best experiences that I've had in classrooms are where um, people from underrepresented groups are willing to put themselves out there and start a dialogue with with people um, that are not like themselves. And and even though that can be challenging and it's scary, I think those are some of the some of the best classrooms I've been in or where people are just willing to like put themselves out there honestly and openly. And I will say that I think Gen Z is this one of the strengths of, of this generation is that I, I'm really seeing in the classroom like a, it's been a shift I'd say in the last three years, like students are just being a lot more open and engaged and honest with each other. And it's, it's made teaching, you know, really, really interesting uh, for me. To, to work with students like that. That is amazing and also convicting because yeah, those conversations can be uncomfortable, but when they are had, then everyone in the room is, comes out a better and more knowledgeable person. So you kind of touched on some research and pieces of writing that you are doing. Could you tell us a little bit about more about that and sort of like your history and then where you are now? Yeah. So in terms of my international relations research, I'm doing, I'm doing a lot of work now on climate change and natural disasters and how that affects conflict risks, both conflict between countries, but also civil wars and terrorism, things like that. So, so 
um, working on a new project looking at how governments uh, respond to natural disasters and how that uh, those those government like do they help reconstruction in an area do they restrict people from moving do they relocate people so um, one of my colleagues and i are working on a new project thinking a lot about um, how natural disasters uh, influence forced migration and then also the risks for political violence um, and then i'm interested too in whether whether natural disasters could have a positive effect in the sense that maybe they will shock, you know, rivalries, you know, out of these conflict paths. So, so sometimes, right, political events can take a pair of countries, say like India and Pakistan, that have had a hostile relationship for a long time, and there could be some kind of maybe regime change or some kind of political shock that could get them to cooperate and, and end their rivalry. And so I uh, have a new paper with some of my grad students at Iowa looking at whether natural disasters can act as shocks to help de-escalate rivalries um, between countries. So, so yeah, those are um, some of the, the things. I'm, I'm, I do a lot of stuff on maritime uh, conflict also. So I just published a piece on looking at like why, like in the South China Seas or things like that. Uh, why do countries contest maritime areas and when do those uh, diplomatic conflicts become militarized? How can we settle them peacefully? When you first finished as a fresh PhD student, you told me that you were 28 years old. How have your interests changed over time to where you are now? I think, um, I mean, I've always been interested in, in you know, interstate conflict. So conflict between countries is, is what I started in and what I still do. Um, I have done war work in international law um, as my career progressed, which is ironic, right? Because I hated constitutional law. <laughs> but ironically, as a professor, I uh, started learning about how international courts are involved in helping countries resolve conflicts. So like the International Court of Justice or the International Criminal Court. And so I got really interested in studying those um, international courts as conflict managers. Um, so I've done a lot more work on law than I expected to. Um, I definitely, uh, I've moved more in the direction of studying civil wars and intrastate violence because uh, it's just like a lot of, a lot of the field since I got my PhD, uh, there are more and more people today, especially after 9-11, that's that really focused on internal political violence. So I've also kind of moved in that direction, studying. Um, so I teach classes in both international conflict and civil wars, for example. Mm -hmm. And I teach a class on international courts. <laughs> so yeah, kind of reflecting the, the areas that I'm interested in and, and a water and conflict class. A really big question, like all these classes that you teach and um, sort of your journey. Why do you continue to do what you do and what is your biggest passion in your profession? I think working with students is, you know, the, the main passion that I have. And, um, you know, I've had 10 PhD students that have finished and I'm working with five or six others at the moment. And, and yeah, they like, just, I love working with uh, like mentoring the next generation of 
of teachers out there. And, but I also love working with undergrad students and um, not only just interacting with them in the classroom, but I've also co-authored multiple projects with undergrad students. And I've mentored a lot of them in terms of working with them as research assistants or on research projects. And, and yeah, so I, I really love getting those letters or notes or emails from students telling me what they're doing. And um, like that's like, it's really just wonderful to see or, or watching a doctoral student who was at one time really nervous in their presentation style. But I go to a conference three years later and I see them confidently presenting. And, and it's just really cool to watch how people, you know, like how they become, like they grow into the person that they're meant to be. And it's really cool to watch them. And um, if you had the chance to, would you do it all over again? Or is there anything you would do differently within your journey? Um, I definitely would do this all over again. I, I definitely picked the right career for myself. Um, I would not change that. I think um, maybe one change I might make is like being more I'm trying to get more connected to people in the policy world right now. So, so for a lot of my career, I've been one of those maybe like white tower, ivory tower academics who like does my work, publishes it in academic outlets. Um, but I wasn't really like writing blog posts or newspaper editorials very much early in my career. So that's something that I've been trying to do in the last um, probably decade or so. Um, maybe last five years uh, more actively. And I, I go on Iowa Public Radio more frequently now as a guest. And so, yeah, I'm just trying to like have more public engagement with my work because I think that's something. Um, I, so, yeah, if I could go back, maybe I would get that started earlier than I did because I, I do think, again, people of the younger generation today, because of social media and, and they're just more naturally out there in the public engagement spaces. And so, you know, when I started grad school, uh, the internet didn't really exist. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> yeah. I started grad school in 91 and my first email I ever sent to a colleague was 94. So, so yeah, you have to remember I started grad school in a time when like the, the world as you guys know it now, I was, didn't even exist then, right? So, um, so yeah, there's, there's been a huge technological transformation in my lifetime. And that, um, I would say that's one of the challenges of my career is keeping up with the changes in technology and computing. And, um, you know, it's just really hard, right, to stay on top of, to, to be uh, up to date on all of that stuff as you age in a profession. And for anyone who would like to go into this profession what is your biggest piece of advice you know in addition to just staying integrated in public eye you said yeah exactly i think you should talk to your professors if you're interested in going to graduate school you should go into office hours and talk to your professors about that um you should be uh if you have an opportunity to serve as a research assistant for a professor, you should definitely try to do that volunteer. I have a lot of people that will come in and volunteer. That's another, again, 
gender bias, perhaps, uh, where women are less likely to put themselves forward, right, for those kind of opportunities. So, um, so yeah, even though it's scary, just do it. <laughs> put yourself out there. Um, and uh, as an example in my field, women publish less often in the top academic journals in my field, but it's not because they get rejected more often, it's because they don't submit as often. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's a submission gap. And I think that's the same thing. Um, I think undergrads sometimes uh, in terms of like self-promotion uh, is maybe harder for women than for men. And so, so I think, um, yeah, I think mentoring young women to have more confidence to be self-promoting in that way and, and seek out opportunities that can help advance their careers. Um, because yeah, no, if someone says no, then so be it. But you know, let somebody tell you no. Don't don't sit back and wait for something to happen. This is I have a 19-year-old, and I, so many of our conversations involve me saying go try that, go do that. And her saying, no, that's scary. I don't want to do that. I don't want to talk to someone on the phone. I don't want to go talk to a professor in office hours. Um, so yeah, I understand that these things are scary, but, but in my experience, the more you put yourself out there in those situations, the more opportunities that you will find are there for you as you, as you advance in your life. So so yeah, do the scary thing and, and try. I love that. I, I love, absolutely love that. Wow. <laughs> Thank you for your time and your advice and sharing your experiences. Yeah, thanks for talking with me. And that was my informational interview with Professor Mitchell. Maybe this is the first time you're hearing of being a professor and you're like, wow, this is something that I could really pursue. And so I'm glad and I hope that maybe this gave you some technical takeaways as long as some just life lessons. And I think the way she talked about really putting yourself out there and really just trying things and maybe you'll fail but it doesn't hurt to try is really just applicable for anyone in any field and also creating a space for people who may be underrepresented in your field was really really special and that one I really resonated with and so I loved this conversation and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I'll see you guys next time. Bye.